Welcome to the inaugural podcast of A Word from the Edge, Faith, Religion, and Spiritual Community at the Edge of Secular Culture. I'm Brother Richard Edward Helmer, Episcopal Priest and Rector of Church of Our Savior in Mill Valley, California, and your host. In this podcast, I talk in an open forum with historian Dryden Little at Church of Our Savior on February 19th, 2017. We look together at the historical roots of the current political moment and discuss a Christian response. Dr. Little examines the current move to populism globally and in American politics and its dangerous invitation to tyranny. I take it up from there by looking at power, tyranny, and politics from the perspective of the Christian gospel. So where should we begin? We can't talk about tyranny in our context without mentioning a notorious tyrant at our tradition's founding, Henry VIII. But to get the ball rolling, um, Dryden and I decided um, that we would start with a portrait of uh, one of our most famous tyrants in the Anglican tradition, the tyrant who started it all, Henry VIII. Um, And the perspective on tyrants, I just want to say, is always about which side of the fence you are on. We can talk about Henry VIII as the great hero who broke with Rome and broke with Roman authority uh, in the 16th century, or we can talk about Henry VIII who, in order to put down uh, restive populaces in the north and to consolidate power and also build up his war coffers, uh, decimated uh, religious life in England uh, during his reign and shut down all of the monasteries and abbeys so that this day if you go to England you can see uh, ruins of abbeys and monasteries all over the English countryside. That's part of his legacy as well. We can talk about classical Anglicanism, remembering that Henry VIII went to his grave believing he was a faithful Catholic. Uh, we can talk about classical Anglicanism under his daughter Elizabeth who, uh, amongst her many famous moves, managed to sequester bishops who were voting against her Protestant proclivities from sitting and voting in the House of Lords. Elizabeth was a tyrant in her own right. It's just that we like to remember her with greater fondness than we like to remember Henry VIII. So... Dryden, would you like to add to that? Over to you. I'll get on to Henry VIII. You've almost stolen my thunder on that, but we'll get on to him later. Okay. But we did initially title this uh, Demagogues, Tyrants, and Democrats. But as I looked at the word demagogue, it sounded awfully like demigod. And many tyrants consider themselves demigods, directly anointed by God. He may have been one of them. But what I think we have to think about When we normally think about tyrants, we often contrast tyrants uh, between totalitarianism and democracy. We think of Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot. But our our historical memory is really too short. It leaves us without any appropriate analogies to consider a full range of tyrants. So it's not just fascism against democracy, but a difference in kind of tyrant 
and the type of systems they established. For historians, ancient Rome is our first call for examine, examining tyranny. What a wealth of examples we have, particularly from the late empire. The bad ones were horribly original. Yet there were what I call reforming tyrants. And it's this kind that may, we may usefully consider in the present day context, a reforming tyrant. But over and above everything, we must always consider that tyrants are in the nature of human beings who are striving for political power. We'll always have tyrants. There's almost, we've had them, we'll, we have them now, we'll have them in the future. It's very difficult to eliminate that aspect of human nature. But, and if, and if we don't realize that, we're really forgetting the danger, and that's at our peril. Aristotle said that man is wolf to man. Lupus is homin to homini. And we must guard against the wolves because they can occur at any moment in time. So when people say it couldn't happen here, they obviously haven't studied their history. Democracies seem to have an amnesia to the lessons of history, but not the founding fathers, because they had studied, they had studied Roman constitutions, Livy's constitutions, Machiavelli's discourses on Livy, which outlined all the different constitutional forms that Rome had tried out. So, also creatures of the Enlightenment. So our founding fathers believed it was possible to frame a constitution that would protect us from tyrants. We'll see. So far, so good. Perhaps the best example of a reforming tyrant was the Emperor Augustus. He was towards the end of the first century BC. He brought peace, security, and prosperity to Rome. And his reign was 46 years. But as with most tyrants, he was very anxious to establish his legitimacy. And he conveniently had Virgil as his PR man. And Virgil traced his ancestry back to the founders of Rome. On gaining power, he had to clear the decks of his enemies. And in Roman times, he did this by posting a prescription list on the door of the Senate. This listed all your enemies who had to be dealt with. The most famous of all, of course, was Cicero. He had his hands and head nailed to the door of the Senate. Augustus was master of propaganda and manipulation. He cunningly titled himself Princeps, which means first among equals. This way he wanted to avoid any taint of dictatorship and kingship. The Romans had a terrible fear of kingships. So he did this by making sure they kept all Rome's institutions and the forms of the Republic. So the Senate continued, but he made sure he packed the Senate with new men, men loyal to him. He also made sure that the Praetorian Guard stayed in Rome and were loyal to him. Now, because he had he kept prosperity going and security going, the people accepted this. And they realized that the Senate by that time was a mere talking shop. And a man like Augustus could get things done. What we think about in Rome is the today's Rome with building statues, Rome in marble, which Augustus built. 
because uh, tyrants love large-scale projects. And as we'll, go, as we'll see, every time always went into large infrastructure projects. It would give the people a memory of what they had achieved. But Augustus' successors were not so effective, and they were often mentally deranged. Commodus, he, was a, he pretended he was a gladiator, but before he got into the ring, he made sure all these fellow gladiators had their swords carefully blunted. So he always emerged victorious. Other than that, we had Tiberius. He was full of capricious wrath. We had Caligula, who declared his horse a senator. Perhaps he wanted his horse to vote with the nays. Oh, sorry about that. Perhaps the founders had someone like him in mind when they designed the Constitution. They consciously copied the Roman Republic with a Senate for patricians and an assembly for the plebeians. The Romans were always aware of monarchical tendencies among competing politicians. He said, six emperor tyrannus, there will always be tyrants. So they always had that in mind. Now we get to the Reformation. And here, Henry VIII, by the way, he is watching and observing. You can see the closeness of his eyes together like that. He's thinking about us around here. He can see into our souls, possibly. He always thought that. And perhaps the white tower is nearby. So all of you better be watching the white tower. You can be manacled until they're ready for the block. That's the kind of time he was. But apart from being an absolute monarch, he was also a reforming tyrant. Again, he suffered from a fear of illegitimate power. And you may remember from a series on television on the Plantagenets, his father, Henry VII, had defeated Richard III, who seized the throne. So that broke the line between the Plantagenets and the Tudors. The Tudors were illegitimate, but recently historians have discovered that his grandfather, Edward IV, was illegitimate. Ah, he would, he, Edward IV was possibly born, his father was an archer in the French wars. So that really would have made him annoyed. His, he came, he descended not from the great kings of England, but from an archer on the fields of France. So he's always watching out for any challenge to his legitimacy. So in this procedure, he always created an atmosphere of terror and unpredictability. This is often a feature of tyrants. But he was a man of contradictions like so many of us, because in his early years, he had Erasmus as a tutor, and also Thomas More. Erasmus wrote a book called The Education of a Christian Prince, especially for Henry. But as we know, Henry became an unstable tyrant, subject to sudden rages. He brooked no opposition, even from the Pope, and would ex execute people on the flimsiest of pretexts. Yet, he could choose men well, and he chose a brilliant administrator called Thomas Cromwell. He was the Grand Chancellor and was in charge of carrying out reforms. To finance these plans, he first dissolved the monastery, plundered them for riches. He then, they called that the stripping of the altars. This is part of the early stage of the Reformation. He could collect the taxes that were going to the Pope, went directly to Henry. 
But above all, he centralized government and strengthened England's power by building a navy. Incidentally, Richard tells me that Steve Bannon recently compared himself to Thomas Cromwell. As in Bannon to his Trump, Cromwell to his Henry VIII. This would be a considerable achievement. But does he not know Cromwell's fate? He was beheaded on the block and not with a sharpened sword, which was reserved for nobility and royalty. The axe was reserved for him, and it usually made a terrible mess of the job. After the divorce of Catherine, Henry proclaimed himself supreme sovereign of the Church of England, and he frightened Parliament into agreement to his proclamation. And many believed that he indeed had been anointed by God as guardian of men's souls. His daughter, on the other hand, famously said, I do not wish to make windows into men's souls. Today's queen retains Henry's title as supreme head of the Church of England and defender of the faith. Don't think her son feels the same way. He wants to change this. Machiavelli's precepts could well apply to Henry. And he probably read him because they were about the same time. First, he said, security and well-being for prince and people. But tyrants often view the state as their personal property. They're ruthless and trample on tradition and accepted rules. They set aside tradition and legal restraints to reform the system. Yet they can be beneficial and create jobs and infrastructure. But it's on their terms and all about them and their family. The reforming tyrant wishes to improve the lot of the people, but he needs untrammeled authority. They also dream of eternal fame and usually proceed through decrees and executive orders, and they are in a hurry. I almost thought of leaving this out, but I'll mention there's another kind of tyrant, which I call the millenarian tyrant, or the totalitarian tyrant. These are who want a total destruction before rebuilding a totalitarian utopia. Their system of ideas or religion wants to annihilate the other. Today, that's the case with ISIS, who wish for a world caliphate working through jihad. It was also the terror of the French Revolution, and Hitler and Stalin, Mao and Pol Pot. All of these killed on an industrial scale, hence the term millenarian tyrants. So how does tyranny contrast with populism, and are the two linked? I think the rise of populism should be looked at in terms of the financial crisis of 2007-8. Then there was a near economic meltdown, and this directly has led to political consequences. We've seen a long delayed reaction to this, the bank bailouts and the gross inequalities that were already present at that time. This is now leading to a reshaping of the political landscape in both Europe and the US. There is no doubt, whatever, that we're seeing every day in the administration's executive orders an attempt to reshape the political consensus, both domestically and internationally. 
European trade deals and the Trans-Pacific Partnership have been killed off, and only bilateral trade deals will be accepted if they're beneficial to the United States. Of course, all these policies appeal to populism on which the president was elected. Before, the, before this current election campaign, a precursor, I think, of this was Brexit. Cameron, the British Prime Minister, opened the door to populism because the decision was taken by a referendum, and that is not a norm in the British Constitution. We don't have referendums. We elect members of parliament who use their judgment to make political decisions. If you allow people to have a binary decision, a referendum in or out, they base that on their opinions, and their opinions can vary from day to day. Tony Blair, you may have seen just yesterday, gave a speech in which he suggested a second referendum. Coming from anyone else, I would have thought, what a great idea. Unfortunately, he doesn't have much credibility in the UK. So we now have a small majority in Britain, 48%, who voted against the European Union. The others have removed European nationality from that 48%. So they've stripped us, stripped me of my European nationality. Now that is, I call, a dictatorship of the majority. It's a term de for use when he's touring the United States. A dictatorship of the majority, which we've tried for centuries to balance our constitution so the majority would not form a dictatorship. In addition, we have Trump encouraging a further unraveling in Europe. And I'd like to talk about these illiberal policies that are flourishing throughout old Eastern Europe and parts of Western Europe. Victor Orban in Hungary, you may have heard of him talking about defending the Christian heritage. His way of doing this is just to put a razor wires along the border with Serbia. That's defending the Christian heritage. He has patrols in Roma neighborhoods in Budapest, organized and in uniform. So-called people's parties are springing up in Slovenia and Slovakia. Even the Swiss have a people's party. Last time I was out there, they were having a referendum on illegal immigrants who had committed crimes. All over Switzerland, there were black sheep representing the illegal immigrant. That's Switzerland. In Poland, the new Law and Justice Party is limiting the powers of the press and blocking constitutional courts. Women are demonstrating against planned bans on abortions. A new school curriculum is being introduced to emphasize nationalism and Catholicism. Illiberal democracy is the term proudly used in Poland and Hungary. So they're a little further down the road than perhaps we are. There was a recent meeting in Koblenz, Germany, and it was full of slogans like, yesterday, a new America, today, a new Europe. They want a return of the nation state with control over frontiers. And 2017's key year for elections throughout Europe, France, Germany, and Holland have elections. And in France, Marie Le Pen is probably the biggest challenge to Europe. Her idea, is that there are two totalitarianisms, the 
is globalization and Islamic fundamentalism. A victory this year could indeed unravel the European Union. So features common to this new nationalism of protection of the mythical national identity and sovereign borders. This means restriction of both trade and immigration, particularly of Muslims. So this is so different from the successful enlargement of the European Union to 29 members in 2005. This was based on liberal values, the rule of law, no border controls, the free flow of people, capital, and goods, and a new national anthem, a Beethoven anthem, Ode to Joy, and a single currency. Now that is part of the problem. This is probably what the camel, what, this is probably the issue that broke the camel's back. You have a common currency without a common currency in 19 diverse economies, a one-size-fits-none. This is dividing Europe and fueling populism of right and left. So what is populism? Well, populists speak in the name of the people, and they claim legitimacy directly from the people. This trumps all other sources of legitimate political authority, be it the justice system, parliament, or Congress. Populists love euphemisms as a smokescreen for lies and deceit. Thus, we have alternative facts for lies. Apparently, we're living in a country in utter ruin with industrial tombstones and scenes of American carnage everywhere. We have a pervasive sense of unreality. Ironically, apocalypse is everywhere, but no mention of climate change, which is systematically denied. Trump said, I am the voice of the people. Therefore, ipso facto, opposition to the people's will must be eliminated. Presently, it is the press and the judicial system which is the opposition or the enemy, quote, unquote. In the UK, the Daily Mail denounced the high court ruling by judges as the enemies of the people. Populars identified the people of Vogue as only some of the people. Nigel Farage of the UK Independence Party said that Brexit was a victory for ordinary people, decent people, and real people. So the 48% voting against leaving the European Union are neither ordinary, decent, nor even real. For populists everywhere, it is the other people who have to watch out. Mexicans, Muslims, immigrants, even experts, elites, and the media. Populism is inimical to pluralism, and eventually the target is constitutional checks and balances that prevent tyranny of the majority. To achieve their ends, they need to weaken civil society and any opposition groups. Thus, populism is a step on the road to tyranny. But if the Liberal Democrats only obstruct this without building alternative policies, the outlook is bleak, perhaps even after the midterm elections. We need policy proposals that appeal to lost Liberal Democrats. Less time should be spent on debating social issues and more on hard issues of jobs, immigration, and trade. We don't want a debate like Mary Le Pen's 
on totalitarianism, economic and Islamic fundamentalism, although this is increasingly the reference in Europe. Madison said that having obtained the suffrage, the populists will betray the interests of the people. So, if populists are seen to have failed, to fail their base, that is, there will be a chance for change. But we must address the issues that concern most people. The alternative is a weakening of our checks and balances, and a final step from populism to tyranny. Thank you. So much, thank you so much, Dryden. Um, I'm going to uh, give a, a, a different angle on the same subject now. I'm going to uh, look at the subject of tyranny and demagoguery and populism and even democracy through the eyes of the Christian gospel. And then we'll have a chance to have some dialogue between me and Dryden and with you all. Um, I, I think you can gather from Dryden's presentation that it's, it's, it is quite obvious that tyrants and demagogues and populists indeed have long been a feature of the world in which Christians live. In fact, uh, some great examples come right out of the New Testament. Jesus was born while Herod the Great was still ruling over Judea and much of ancient Israel. Herod the Great, uh, like um, one of his successors, tyrants, Henry VIII, had a legitimacy issue. And uh, he was an Idumean, he was an outsider, he was from the southern part of Israel, and he married a Hasmonean princess to put him in alignment with the Maccabees, who were very famous at the time for having led a revolt against the Seleucid Empire about two centuries prior. And then he went to Rome to back up his claim to authority and got a Roman, Roman, pardon me, a Roman army to march into Judea with him to basically assume power. And as Dryden mentioned, um, Herod the Great was a normal tyrant in that he undertook enormous building projects, including uh, the community of Caesarea, which is mentioned in the Gospels, which he literally built from the ground up and then the rebuilding and expansion of the temple in Jerusalem was largely under his purview. Jesus, of course, is also addressing later in life one of Herod's sons, Herod Antipas. When Herod the Great died, he passed his legacy on to four of his sons, and the kingdom was divided up into a tetrarchy, um, as a puppet regime under the authority of the Roman Empire. And so every once in a while you see Jesus address Herod directly or indirectly during his public ministry. But the other thing that Jesus clearly has to address is the empire itself. And so he is always addressing the emperor, the inheritor of the legacy of Augustus, under whom Jesus was also born. The core witness I want to maintain of the gospel and of Christianity is to subvert the tyrants of the world. 
And I want to begin by talking just a little bit about the gospel hermeneutic of power, because I think it's very important for us to understand that. As Christians, I think we're sometimes tempted to duck questions and conversation about power, both politically and interpersonally. We think that that's a worldly occupation, but in fact, there is a hermeneutic or an interpretation of power that's very critical to us, and it begins with the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. It's in one of the early stratas of the gospel narratives, and that's when Jesus is in the wilderness. You remember what he's tempted by when Satan comes to him. He's tempted by the need for security, that is food, shelter, and comfort. Remember Satan's question, you know, if you are the son of God, change these stones into bread. Show some divine power and bring some comfort to yourself. The second temptation to power is needing the esteem of others. Remember what Satan does, he takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and says, throw yourself off because it is written in scripture that the angels will lift you up, that you will be saved by God. And the basic question behind that act that he's tempted to is, do you love me? Do you esteem me? But the third one is critical for, I think, our understanding of the Christian response to tyranny and political power more generally. And that is the final temptation, if you remember, is Satan takes Jesus to the mountaintop and shows him all of the kingdoms of the world and says, I will give you all of this if you but bow down and worship me. I will give you political power if you but bow down and worship me. And that hits right at home for our need to control that which is around us. Much of political history, I argue, could be summed up as nations or peoples attempting to meet any one of these needs, and conflict inevitably arises when any of these needs or desires are not met. The spirituality, if you will, of the tyrant and the populist is to manipulate these needs that are always present in the wider populace to meet his or her insatiable desire for power and control. So to take that forward a little bit, I'd like to focus how we respond in Jesus' own words. And this comes from the 10th chapter of Mark's Gospel. If you remember the story, James and John approach Jesus. In one of the Gospel narratives, they're even egged on by their mother. And they say to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus says to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They reply, in the senses, they reply easily, we are able. Then Jesus says to them, the cup that I drink you will drink, that is the cup of suffering. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized, that is the baptism of the Spirit. But to sit at my right hand or at my left, that is, in glory, is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So naturally, when the ten other disciples hear this, they are angry with James and John. Why? Well, 
because James and John have probably put a voice to all of their secret desires. And secondly, they're convenient scapegoats then, right? So Jesus calls them together and says to them, you know that among the Gentiles, that is, everyone outside the Jewish people, and indeed it points to the Roman authorities and others who were tyrants of the day, among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them. In other words, are tyrants. Their great ones are tyrants over them, Jesus said. But he goes on to say, it is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. As an institution, Christianity inherited this spiritual teaching but even in the New Testament, you see just a few generations in, we start to run into trouble with it, particularly as we come up against the patriarchal structures of the Roman Empire. And they begin to sneak into the church, even, so that by the late letters of the New Testament that were written probably between 60 and 80 AD, you see admonitions going out to somebody named Timothy or somebody who has taken on that name to give attribution and wait to the letter about how you are to organize a church after the patriarchal model of the wider empire. You have overseers, that is bishops, being instituted. You have women being silenced systemically in the church you have a sense of the hierarchical structure that was common throughout the empire beginning to be the organizing principle of institutional Christianity. And then, of course, this becomes the norm when Christianity becomes the state religion of the Roman Empire a few centuries later. The co-option of the Christian tradition for political ends and our simultaneous embrace of worldly power to forward our own agenda is a pattern that is actually common throughout many of the world faiths throughout the ages. Judaism under the ancient Israelite kings is an example, going back to the Hebrew scriptures or what we commonly call the Old Testament. Islam gravitated towards caliphates during the medieval period, and of course we have the malignant example today of ISIS, and then we've seen in recent history populist revolts, as in the Islamic Revolution in Iran in the late 70s. The broader Judeo-Christian pattern of dealing with political power has been to live in the tension between granting legitimacy, that is anointing, which is a pattern that goes back to the Old Testament, governments and kings, and holding political leadership to account which is the role of the prophets in ancient Israel, and the place of bishops in the House of Lords in the English system, uh, which we see around the time of Henry VIII's successor in Elizabeth, and the contemporary role of Christian churches in the marketplace of ideas in American democracy. 
So I want to lay out just one other question, and that is, are Christians fundamentally democratic? Are we Democrats? Not in the partisan sense, but in the sense of being liberal Democrats who believe in the power of the people and one person, one vote. We know from the very baseline story of the passion itself, the dangerous power of the mob. Mobs are both fickle in their focus and they are easily manipulated by shrewd power brokers or populists. It's not an easy question to answer, is it? In the Episcopal Church at its founding just after the Revolutionary War, there was deep concern over the overweening tendency of the office of the bishop, as well as the tendency to centralize power and authority in the historical church. So the effort, in addition to adopting Enlightenment democratic principles, which paralleled the adoption of those in the New Republic that the United States was making at the time, was to maintain as much local autonomy in the parish as possible. This was the dream of William White, who really was the architect of our church structures. While bishops would serve as overseers, connecting the parochial mission with that of the wider church, democracy based on the history going all the way back to the ancient patterns of life and religious communities seemed only to work best for Christians. When elected leaders are local and are most intimately accountable to the people that they serve. Servant leadership goes back to Jesus' teaching, and it's even been adopted now widely in secular settings, but it has roots in the Judeo-Christian models of political organization, and it tends to mitigate against the propensities of both tyrants and populists. <clears throat> so I'd like to offer just a few conclusions before I wrap up. Christians might well argue that the best of political democracy involves maximizing engagement and accountability and limited power for those who are elected. Christianity also has a prophetic role in rejecting the assertions of tyrants as saviors. Listen very closely to the rhetoric. It swirled around the most recent election, and you'll see what I mean. And this is not an overstatement to say the Antichrist, who is an image from early apocalyptic Christian literature. This is an image that dates back to the persecutions of the Roman Empire. Persecutions led by the Roman Empire, pardon me, against Christians. The Antichrist is the marriage of political structures with religion and then undertaking policies that perpetuate injustice and suffering. Christianity historically has been tempted, particularly in nations where it is the predominant religion, to become part of the power structure and to be charmed by tyrants who seek to use it to forward their agenda of consolidating authority. And so, according to Jesus' teachings, we have an absolute obligation to the poor and the marginalized, which actually builds on deep Jewish tradition as well. This is always placed 
before obligations to the powerful and the influential. And it means that Christians must always be uncomfortable within the power structures of the world and be appropriately suspicious of assertions of authority, whether they come from tyrants, political parties, clergy, or institutional structures. Finally, I want to leave you the image and the language of the ancient church. I'm fond of noting that there were two expressions in the most ancient Christian tradition that were commonplace, as diverse as it was. One of them is Jesus is risen, that is, building a faith based on resurrection. And the second one is Jesus is Lord. We often hear that as just mere article of faith, but it is in fact a political statement in the face of the emperor's authority and all of the related patriarchal structures of the Roman Empire. Jesus as Lord says, Lord above all else, above the emperor, above the nation state, above any model of political power. That, my brothers and sisters, I would say makes Christians, at least when they're not being willing to be co-opted by the power of the day, dangerous and subversive. Thank you. Thank you. Richard, it seems to me when you set out your hypothesis of Jesus' temptations in the wilderness, that's almost defining the road to tyranny unless you resist these temptations. Is he saying that? And is the solution, your solution, about making all, all worship local, all politics local, all religion should be local? Question. It's, it's a fascinating question, and I think, um, I think the short answer to your, to your question is, yes, I think, I think it can, can be seen that Jesus temptations in the wilderness are as much political as they are personal and spiritual. And one of the ways we can draw that out more just by staying within the context of the New Testament writings is to turn to the Gospel of John and Jesus' dialogue with Pilate during the Passion narrative, where Jesus talks about his kingdom not being of this world, And Pilate cannot hear or understand that because Jesus is not speaking the language of power that Pilate understands. Pilate being an extension of the tyranny of the emperor and of the military occupying power. So I I think fundamentally, yes, it is a political way of looking at things. And I would argue that the concentration of power is a dubious project by virtue of the fact that we in the Christian tradition understand humanity as not essentially, but effectively in our current state as flawed. And so we always have to bring a suspicion to those who hold power, and we have to have systems of accountability in place. Mm. And I, I think going back to the very earliest Christian communities, where bishops were all local, not regional, they were local, 
um, that immediate contact of intimacy was essential to mitigating against the tendency to concentrate power in the hands of a fallible individual. Does that address the question? Yeah. Yep, it's, um, if, if tyranny is a permanent feature of the human condition, we have to find some solution. Maybe, as you suggest, a local one. Do you have any questions for me? Oh, I do, I do. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to ask you, I read a fascinating article just yesterday, and I haven't had a chance to do more research on it. It's, it's the example of Norway, um, which, like many of the European countries in the 1930s, underwent a political upheaval that was populist in nature, and they flirted with the totalitarian tendencies of um, Nazi Germany of the time. And in fact, fascism almost grabbed power in Norway, but it was overcome by a populist movement that united the farmers with the middle class over and against um, hyper-capitalists on the one side and fascists on the other. And um, according to this, this author's statement, and, um, they actually dodged the, the fascist bullet and turned into a social democracy um, through that. Um, are there examples that you can think of of populist movements that lead ultimately to a renewed or reformed and largely peaceful and open society? Norway is a great example because the Norwegians, of course, three or four million of them, small country, deeply individualistic, and far basically rural. And uh, the Norwegians are very proud of their independence, so I can see how that would have worked there. Other countries, uh, let's look at Spain after Franco. Franco kept the hatches down for 30, 40 years. But suddenly, things opened up. Now, was that pressure from the populace, or was it Opus Dei, or... The people were certainly uh, pressuring them to open up, and eventually we have a thriving democracy in Spain and Portugal through pressure from below, and some of the power structures, the church, uh, being opus dei largely in that time, um, and uh, uh, foreign foreign influence too in terms of foreign investment. There, so there are things that outsiders can do to open up dictatorship. Uh, but recent times, we haven't had very good examples of that. Uh, when we've tried to deal with benign dictators or dictators who uh, we thought were pretty bad, we end up with something much worse. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't know. I can't think of any other examples in recent times. That's an interesting, interesting point. Um, Pinochet, I know people hate him, but... Um, he did open up the economy and create a lot of prosperity. Um, and he finally did step down. Um, so he was subject to a lot of outside influences too. If he'd been held in Britain, the House of Lords had a, uh, had a warrant for his arrest when he was in London getting measured for new suits at Harris. <laughs> Margaret Thatcher said, no, 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 he's our friend. Because he had let British SOS people into southern Chile during Falcon's War mm -hmm. to go into Argentina and blow up the Exocet 
missiles that were ready to go to the Balkans. So um, he friends the world, but he also internally, uh, he had a lot of people who were pressuring him for change. That has been a success. Thank you. You uh, touched very, very briefly on de Tocqueville, um, the, the French um, author who really studied American right. democracy closely and wrote about it. And he's come up uh, in some of the community organizing work that I've been engaged with. Um, and one of, one of the things he submits is that the best defense of um, democracy, the best sense of the word, is not found necessarily in the voting populace per se, but is found in a strong, diverse, and engaged civil sector, uh, which includes churches and not-for-profits yeah. and other organizations at every level of society that are willing to engage directly yeah. with the um, elected leadership. I, Could you expand on that I a little think bit? That's a wonderful example because he was very impressed by what he found in in the US when he was traveling. Everywhere he went, there were local meetings, people organizing civic communities, uh, voting for things. He, he never seen anything like it. And um, today we still have this, not the same scale, but this is really the, the strength of this country. Why I think it's very, very difficult for anyone to become a tyrant. Not just because of the checks and balances, you can gradually erode these over time, but because of the strength at the local level. Organized groups, who will make a noise, who will be out in the streets if necessary. So de Tocqueville saw that very early on, that the American was very conscious of his independence and was always willing to challenge authority. I think um, uh, a great uh, witness to that was an article that came out just a couple of weeks ago in, in the face of the, um, what, I, uh, what I think we can say fairly is now the failed executive order on immigration. I mean, at this point, it's being rewritten and recast, yeah. hopefully in, in conformity with what the courts are expecting. But um, it, was a, it, it was a lovely note written by a, quote, liberal pastor in a largely conservative, that is, Trump-supporting conversation in uh, a rural part of the country. Um, and the pastor's recognition that over time he had built up a level of relationship with the people he was serving um, and at the same time, he was very reticent, as you might imagine, of speaking out on Sunday mornings about what was going on politically until a couple in the congregation who were from Iran were divided by the immigration order. And uh, one member of the couple was barred from re-entering the country. And at that point, he felt obliged to speak out. And what surprised him was one of the people he thought was going to push back hard against him, because he was a Trump supporter, actually stood up and said, we need to do something about this. Because these are people we know. These are people we know. My point being that that, that, that level of personal engagement and awareness is, is really our pathway to do both what you've suggested Dryden, I think, which is to address the underlying economic roots of the current populist moment, yeah. um, and also to overcome the, the partisanship which is being cultivated uh, in order right now to, to curry power um, amongst some of our elected officials. Yeah. Would you like to expand on that at all? I, I'm just throwing that up. Maybe someone else does, because we could perhaps open it up. You want to open it up? Questions, comments?
you can't resist it. It does, it occurred to me after hearing both sides of this that, and this has often been a thought that, that we're living in, in something of a fantasy world in that back in the Middle Ages, the serfs occupied the land and a good lord, not this lord, but the landlord, would see to it they were very happy. And they might even have their own little democratic system. We now have a wonderful democratic system, it appears to be, but at the end of the day, it occurs to me that we are still serfs in a landlord occupied people uh, having the power really are behind the scenes and they have the money. So we all work ourselves to the bone and we're very happy doing so. And somebody's pulling the strings. And I'm sorry, it's, uh, uh, I, can't ha I can't get away from that. And the more I see Trump taking on the populist role, the more I see that in action. Well, I, I, I think it's fair only to amplify that point by, by saying that it's precisely that problem that Jesus is often addressing in his context, historically. Um, you know, all of, all of the parables about landlords and absentee landlords and uh, people who are brought in to take care of the vineyard, all of that is rooted in a, in a system that was seen by the people on the ground as fundamentally unjust. And um, maybe Dryden would like to add to this, but I, I would just point out that part of the current anger in our system in that moment, um, and ironically enough, it's coming from a lot of people who support Trump, is precisely against that idea that somehow their birthright has been sold out to the highest bidder. And, um, and then it becomes a convenient scapegoat for whoever's in power or it becomes convenient for a rabble-rouser like Jesus to foment a new movement. Do you, do you want I, to add to that? I think people see that their democracy, which they cherish, is a fraud. A fraud. They vote for people, but these people are already representing the lobbyists or other groups of power, and so their vote doesn't matter. They judge that. It's taken a long time for them to judge that. But this last election, I think that's exactly what they're doing. They're judging that these people running this country were not representing them. That's the 51% or whatever the percentage was that voted for Trump. So they're willing to vote for anyone uh, and hold their nose if necessary because they consider that their, their representatives were abusing the trust that they thought they had and they weren't even coming to the, back to their towns and dealing with local questions. So again, it's the disconnect between politicians in Washington and their local and the locals concerned. So we didn't, some of them didn't seem to even realize what people were thinking. Mm -hmm. Whether it was immigrants or trade, I mean, it's obvious to anyone who studied the issue, they either willfully ignored this for their own benefit, or they were ignorant. A combination of the two. But you can't have a society with such a disconnect between the voter and their representatives and call it a democracy. It's an oligarchy at that stage. And that's what we've slipped into. Someone challenged me on that, because I may be extreme on that. I'm not going to necessarily challenge you on that, but I think you had to add a third group, a third reason. That's the elitism that people in Washington have a view that they were smarter than everybody else. And their view was the only view. And if you countered that view, 
you were described as a deplorable or you were described as something worse than that. And I think that led to the anger uh, in addition to, I mean, I always go back and tell people, you know, if you were a 40-year-old working in West Virginia in a coal mine and you have someone running for president telling you that you're, you are no longer going to be able to do that, you should get retraining, that's quite an elitist statement to make. And I think that that occurred a lot, and, we, and I think that's the third uh, prong of what you were saying. I think you've, that's the most important thing. I mean, when you go to West Virginia or any of these places, large and high unemployment, and the, the jobs are being taken away from them, and people don't care. They just don't care. And that is the end of a political system. They cannot represent these people if that's their, their attitude. Well, it, it, it's, it's intriguing. I mean, understanding what representation means, and I, I go back to my, to my point that there has to be some level of intimate engagement on the ground. And what's been most fascinating just about the past two weeks, and also disturbing, is members of Congress actually canceling town hall meetings out of fear um, because of the, the sort of what we might call, I don't know, the counter or the liberal Tea Party movement, which is beginning to form. And um, it's, it's ir ironic to me that the desire for engagement sometimes has the exact and opposite effect um, in that it drives politicians to run for cover. Um, and I'm intrigued, you know, by the example of the Roman Senate. I mean, prior to the ascendancy of Augustus, um, as, as an emperor of the people, um, the corruption that overtook the Senate, I mean, I mean the, the, the ease in which republics fall into elitism, political elitism, where elected officials end up sitting in their own echo chamber and deciding policy. Um, I, I just raised that as an image. Uh, Dryden, do you want to shed any well, I remember the light Republic, on that? The Roman Republic had 500 years behind it of gradually widening, widening the connection between the people and their representatives. And it fell into corruption in the last century BC with civil wars. But if you look at, if you look at Sulla, who was about 100 BC, he was a man of the people. But, and they gave him a dictatorship for a short period, only for six months. That was the tent. He could sort things out in six months and go back to the farm or go back to the Senate. So they had a lot of experience of trying trial and error on different systems. And uh, Machiavelli's great book on discourses on Livy, far better than his prince, because he read all these constitutions and deals with them thoroughly. And you can see everything that was tried from 700 BC right up until Augustus. They tried all kinds of combinations see which, what worked. The one thing they were paramount against was kingship, because that, it started out that way. They saw that would never work. And I often think maybe that's why George Washington turned down kingship. Right. Because if not so much his, his democratic instinct, perhaps his, his knowledge of what happened in Rome with kings, it never lasted. Well, there's also the biblical parallel. I mean, uh, there's a great reluctance um, to follow the populist will or the will of the people to have a king in uh, the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, Samuel yeah. warns them on no uncertain terms about what will happen if they have a king. Um, they insist, and God says, okay, and then they get Saul, who turns out to be a bad egg, after all. Um, David is a little bit better, of course, but he has his, his foibles, to be sure. 
and then it goes downhill from there, really, um, when you look at the history of kings. Or the temptation at one point where Jesus is actually resisting being made a king uh, by, by the crowds. There's an unfortunate subtext in what we're talking about. That is, does this really matter for the ordinary man? He wants security. He wants food and shelter, as we talked about in your temptations. Yes. And he wants respect. Yes. And uh, does he care about the form of government? I think that's a valid concern. I, 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 don't, have a, I don't have an easy answer to that. I, I don't, my, my cynical side says no. The ordinary man or woman does not care about the form of government provided that that form of government provides them with, as you say, the basics of economic security. Yeah. I mean, Hitler's success, for instance, is rooted largely in bringing economic prosperity to a people who had been deeply deeply wounded economically by both reparations and then by the subsequent Great yeah. Depression. Um, but you educate people in this country to respect the Constitution as if it was a religious document. And that is a great strength, which in Britain we don't have, because we don't have a written Constitution, we have constitutional practice. But this quasi-religious document called the Constitution, people really... I'm not fully still don't fully understand it, but it is of tremendous importance to people. And that is very, it brings people together, I think. If there's any attack on the Constitution, people will come together. Well, I hope that's the case. My concern at this point is actually the willful ignorance that has descended upon large segments of our population. And, and also, I, I see a very deliberate attack over at least a generation, probably two generations now, on a school system that was in part designed to, to help people become an, an embedded part of the civil democracy that de Tocqueville saw. That's what Tocqueville talked about. Yeah. yeah. And <clears throat> a lot of that has been eroded away. And then I think, I think it's important for me to mention, because it's in the room with us, and we don't talk about it much, the uh, emergence of dominionism. Uh, which is particularly prevalent in the evangelical community. But it's the idea that um, while attempting to preserve what is seen as fundamental American political principles, enshrining into law biblical principles, of course, which begs the question, whose biblical principles are we talking about? Um, but it, it, it starts to take on the taste and this is going to be very partisan of me to say it, but I'll, I'll just come out and say it. It starts to take on the taste of Christian Sharia. And we have people connected with that movement who are in prominent positions of political power now. Uh, and uh, we have to be very careful that we don't get co-opted as a Christian community into that notion. Hmm. I think. It seems to me that um, one of the uh, big issues that caused the rise of populism is the growing income inequality in this country that's been going on here for a few decades. And it was, it's really been caused by globalization, which has um, taken jobs to other countries. It's been caused by illegal immigration, where uh, workers have come in and been willing to work for very low wages. It's been caused by the opioid epidemic 
which has particularly hit the rural areas and the white, poor white community. And I don't think that the system in Washington has really addressed these issues. And I was thinking that for a long time there would be a rise of the populace with pitchforks to storm the Bastille, but they didn't. They went to the ballot box and voted in a new administration, which is a way the system is supposed to work. So uh, the question is, is this just a short-term thing, or is it the rise of a new tyrannical um, situation? If um, the new administration can't deliver, I think we'll just swing back to, we'll get another group in to see if we can do something about it. But I think that the system in Washington was so broken that um, people wanted to change, and this is what we got. Well, maybe on the positive side, what might happen is, uh, you see, it's not working because the man can't work with the, within the rules of the system. Um, but anyone who takes his place, say the midterms thereafter, may well make a big effort to reform the system. Everyone by then may be so afraid, he's now see the consequences of not doing anything. They may get together and do something. But it's a... You know, it's a fallen on hope, possibly. But if not, the pitchforks, I'm always asked that question when I first came here, why do Americans not arise up and kick these people out? Why don't they take to the street? Because in Europe, that's exactly what would happen, particularly in France, because it's easier when you have a centralized country like France, Paris, everyone comes to Paris, and there are millions. And the government trembles. And the whole tradition is that, from the French Revolution onwards. Throughout Europe, revolutions have been prevalent. Um, the very last one was the Civil War, where more people died proportionally than in the First World War. In the English Civil War, and people have forgotten all about that. But uh, it is inevitable that people will do that at some point in time. Somehow, people are so dispersed in this country, there's no great center of power. Uh, like Washington is so far away from power centers. Are people going to come from Seattle? It's going to be quite difficult for them to... They have to protest locally, and then you may have states revolting, states rebelling. Well, I think, I think it's, there are two myths, I think, that are at work in our civil religion, if you will. One of them is, is um, and we heard this invoked um, around, around uh, the discomfort with the, with the last election, and that is the peaceful transition of power. There's a, there's a deep yeah. uh, level of trust, in fact, almost it can be a source of denial <laughs> in the populace in this country, I would argue. Um, but secondly, I think the other piece of our myth is that Washington is a power center, and it is to a certain degree, particularly when it comes to tax season, right? Mm -hmm. But in fact, most of the things that intersect with our day-to-day -day lives are decided at the local level. Um, any of you who have tried to do anything with a building or a house in Mill Valley understand that, right? Or a tree, you know? Um, so, I, I mean, there, there is a way that, that part of this is the distortion of the American myth um, and, and 
Ironically, I would say our desire for a king, although we don't, wouldn't, wouldn't call it that, but we, we plant a lot, a lot of responsibility and credibility, probably even when we shouldn't, in the office of the president. Right. The yeah. presidents take credit when the economy is good. They get clobbered when the economy is bad, um, when in fact they have very little control, very little control over yeah. I have not been here for the whole discussion, but what really concerns me, because I have lived from the Great Depression, in which I was born, for so many years, I have loved my country. I've been a patriotic rah-rah-rah girl, and this is the first time I've been frightened. And I think when we get that frightened, we either go into our closets and hope nobody finds us, or we stand up and fight. And that's just the way I was raised. You stand up and fight for what you want, fight for what you believe is right, and join with others who have similar views. And I think if you are connected to the Internet, you probably get lots of emails from various politicians, but we we have to rally around a group of people or a leader who will guide us through these troubled times. That's my, my scary point. Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting how, how you've, just, you've, you've hit on the impulse which I think ignites the fire under populism. You know, we, we want to find a leader we can rally around, right? That's, that's the impulse again for, for a king. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, again, it depends, it depends which side of the fence you're on. So it, it's not a criticism of you specifically, but it's just, this is, this is a driving impulse that's very deep in the human condition. That's my only point, particularly when we are frightened. Particularly when we are frightened. And um, I guess the other, the other thing I want to lift up, and maybe you can address this some more, Dryden, but is the, the reforming impulse, the belief that we always have to be reforming the system, is something that's not only infected um, the, the civil government structures, particularly in this country. I mean, one could argue that we are undergoing a constant state of revolution, or bloodless revolution, you might say, um, if you compare it with, say, the ongoing imp revolutionary impulses of France in, in the 19th century. But uh, long point short, what I'm saying is that in the church, we also have these moments, these reforming moments, not just the Reformation, but, for instance, the movement that Francis started in the 13th century in medieval Europe of the period. Um, the reforming impulses of my patron, Gregory the Great, who unified a, a deeply fractured uh, Western Europe around, around church practices in um, his time, in, in the early yeah. medieval period. Um, how do we focus the need for reform in a way that does not succumb to the fear that Marilyn talks about 
which can draw us um, to end up supporting tyranny. <laughs> I know you wouldn't. <laughs> no, you're not. No, you're not. But, but you can see how easily it leads to that. That's my point. Anyway. I'm, I'm, I'm suspicious of the word reform because it assumes that we're progressive, that we slowly improve the human condition. I don't believe we do. Now, we may go in cycles of great improvement, like the Enlightenment perhaps was the peak of the last cycle of human improvement. Um, but it's been down since. We've had more tyranny and more bloodshed uh, uh, than perhaps any time in history in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't think we can reform the human condition. We certainly can reform and change our institutions and hope that will result in uh, a better outcome. But whether that can be done through a tyrant, or can we have a demand, an oligarchy, or we can have Aristotle said you need a combination of all. You need, you need the one, the few, and the many coming together. Combination of kingship, oligarchy, and the people through democracy. Um, that still is the best answer to reform. Get people working together, representing different parts of society. Does that, does that match, you think, uh, what de Tocqueville saw in his analysis of American democracy? No, I, I think the United States was unique, a unique experience in human history. First time an immense continent had created something from virtually nothing, created a system of government that did give rights to a large number of people. And it was the height of the Enlightenment. And it came out of the Enlightenment. All these people are Scots ancestry, largely. <laughs> <laughs> Not speaking as a partisan. Even course. Hamilton. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, no, this was a wonderful period in history. Yeah. Things were happening all over the place. Uh, new ideas were being, but, but I don't think, we, don't, we haven't seen that since. Mm -hmm. And perhaps it's the scale of society now. We're all, all too big. And they get back to your idea of a local autonomy. And that's why this country can survive this through the strength of the state system, possibly. Other thoughts? Right. Other questions? Very interesting. To give you all Good food questions. for thought? <laughs> no solutions. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> Thank you very much, Dryden, for being here. Thank you all very much for being here. Thanks for listening to this podcast of A Word from the Edge a service of the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. Look for upcoming episodes in iTunes or at our website, OurSaviorMillValley.org. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to greet you in person very soon.